I want to dispense very rapidly uh, with verses 51 and 52 uh, of this chapter, the, uh, the hard-to-understand part. Uh, Jesus asks his disciples at the end of a long series of parables whether they understand what he has been saying. Um, rather optimistically, I think, given what we know about the disciples generally, they say, yes, yeah, we, we've got it, we understand. And, uh, and Jesus gives the cryptic reply, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of the storeroom new treasures as well as old. Uh, opinion is divided over exactly what these verses mean. Rather than spend the morning running through the options, which I, I could do, it might be enlightening, um, I'll, I'll just tell you my conclusion. I think Jesus is saying here that his disciples are to be people who draw on two great sources of treasure. Their Jewish heritage in scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, on the one hand, and the new teaching which they're receiving from Jesus on the other there are old treasures and there are new treasures. Uh, if that's correct, then uh, Jesus is actually doing something very important here. He is endorsing the Old Testament and he is telling us as a church that if we ever move away from that Old Testament route, then we have lost something. Full half of our treasure. Uh, but he's also putting his own words on the same level as the Old Testament and so effectively saying that he speaks for God. So actually there could be something quite exciting going on in these verses. Jesus is saying, you Christians can read the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, as a book about me, about Jesus the Son of God, and it is all treasure for you. Brilliant. Great news. Perhaps I should have spent longer on those verses. They do sound exciting. Um, but we will leave them there for now. And we'll, we'll come to the parable. The parable of the net. To be honest, what we have here is really more of a picture than a parable. There isn't any storyline, per se. Uh, the scene is, or, or would have been for Jesus' disciples, a very ordinary, uh, very everyday scene. Um, fishermen have returned from a night out on the Sea of Galilee. Of course, many of Jesus' disciples would have been very familiar with that line of work before they started following him. That's the way they spent their nights. They've been out fishing. And as the sun starts to rise, they return to the shore and they haul this huge dragnet up the shore. It's a big net, so this is a commercial fishing operation. It's not just James out on the lake looking for trout. And they spread this net out on the shore. Now, of course, the thing with a dragnet is it is not a very selective instrument. It will take up everything. Uh, and they, they've trawled the Sea of Galilee with it um, one commentary told me how many species of fish there were living in the Sea of Galilee. I can't remember the answer. I'm sorry about that. Um, and, and now they've got this, this net full of fish. Um, but before they can, can call it a night and say, yep, that's a, a good job, well done, they need to sit down and sort through the net. Uh, they need to sort through the catch. Uh, what can they sell? Uh, what's useful? Um, and what just needs to be got rid of? Uh, there are various species of fish, no doubt, that are edible and that will, will fetch a price at market, and so those go into different containers, sorted out by, by type, perhaps. 
Um, and anything else, whether it's just bits of weed that the net has picked up or, or inedible fish that nobody is going to want to buy, is thrown away. Uh, maybe it will be put somewhere to rot down and be used in the future as fertiliser. Or, or maybe it will just go into a rubbish heap. Or maybe they'll just throw it back into the sea. It's of no use to them. The image uh, is mundane, uh, perhaps actually even pleasant. I imagine a, an oil painting, perhaps, with uh, the sun just coming up over Galilee and, and the fishermen on the shore. Um, it'd be more pleasant in an oil painting than in real life because it wouldn't stink of fish. Um, but Jesus' interpretation of this pleasant picture uh, brings out two points about the kingdom of heaven which are neither mundane nor, frankly, particularly pleasant. We're forced by this image to think long and hard about the division that the kingdom of heaven brings and about the destination that the parable describes for those that it calls bad fish. I say we're forced to do it because if we do it properly, if we reflect on this, it will be uncomfortable for us, even painful. But this is the word of the Lord. Uh, these are the words of our Lord Jesus. So let's try to hear them. Firstly, this parable portrays the kingdom of heaven as a divisive kingdom. When we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about God's rule being put into effect in history. We're talking about God's saving activity being put into effect in history. And this parable tells us that just as the fishermen divide the contents of their net, so God's rule divides humanity. If you've been here for many of the other sermons in this series, this will come as, as no particular surprise to you. We've seen it again and again. Um, for example, think back to the parable of the sower. The seed which represented the word of God was scattered far and wide, but in the end it didn't have the same effect everywhere it fell. Some people received the word and lived it out. And others, for a variety of reasons, rejected it. There was division in that parable. Perhaps what comes out most clearly, though, from our parable for today is the finality of this division. Jesus' interpretation of the parable begins with the words, this is how it will be at the end of the age. And in saying that, he's asking us to fast forward through all of history that remains to the final act. This is how it will be at the close of history. Although we see division going on now around us, none of that is, is irreversible or set in stone. Um, maybe you speak about Jesus to somebody. They are uninterested. They walk away. But nothing has been decided. There is still time. There is still life. Everything could change. Think about the number of times I heard and rejected 
and sometimes even hated the message of the kingdom before I became a Christian. Although we do see division all around us, it can still be overcome. Any apparent rejection of the message now could still be reversed. Everything could change. But what this parable tells us is that at the end of the age, there will be a division which will be final. No reversal and no change. worth us noting that in the final division there may well be many baskets but there are ultimately only two types of fish. It's possible that when Jesus describes the good fish being sorted out into different containers that he's hinting at the idea that Christians will receive different rewards in the next life. I think that idea crops up from time to time in the New Testament but if it is here at all it's only a hint because the main point here is that there are really only two sorts of fish. Good fish and bad fish. Actually, I think we can see that in the other parables as well. Think back to the parable of the sower again. There were four different types of soil, but at the end of the day only one bore a crop. All of the others could be classed together as bad soil in the final analysis. From the fisherman's point of view, the fish is either good or bad. There is no in-between. And in the same way, in this final division, there will be only, finally, two types of human being. The parable calls them, or Jesus in his interpretation of the parable calls them, the wicked and the righteous. We'll see what that means a bit more later on. Why does Jesus tell us this parable? Why does he put this here? I think to warn his disciples and through them to warn us on two counts. The first warning is the obvious one. There will be a final division. We cannot just assume that the world will always go on as it has been with all of its shades of grey and and murk where it's never quite clear where anybody stands or whose side anyone is on. It will not continue in that way. Everything will be sorted out. What is more, we do not know when that is going to happen. We can't assume that we will always have more time. It would be dangerous to make that assumption. Neither can we assume that at the end of the day everything will be alright. As I think our culture loves to assume. This parable stands against any sort of bland assurance that a God of love will just whitewash everything that has happened in life and at the end of the day everybody will be the same. There will be a division. No matter how incredible that is considered by our contemporaries. Against all the opinion and current wisdom that floats around that tells us that if there is a God, he will ultimately just let everybody off. This parable says, no, 
against everything that anybody else says, we have to set the words of Jesus. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then he knows. He knows. And only he really knows what it will be like at the end of the age. He tells us to warn us. I think there is a second and slightly more subtle warning here, which is that we should not be too quick to draw dividing lines now. Anything we see now is provisional. All the borders we draw in our heads uh, between the good people and the bad people, um, those who are in and those who are out, even the church and the world, all of those borders must only be drawn with pencil if we have to draw them at all. Nothing is fixed. We must wait to see where the final dividing line will fall. Frankly, I expect there will be some big surprises for, for all of us as to who is on what side. And in the meantime, we would do best not to presume to know, but to hope for everyone and to continue to witness to Jesus in the world. The kingdom of heaven divides. It is dividing now. One day it will divide finally. And there will be only two types of human being at the end of the age. But secondly, if we're to take this parable seriously, we must consider the destination of those who are here described as bad fish and the wicked. Of the others, of the good fish, nothing is said here. But the bad fish, who in the picture of the fishermen are simply thrown away, represent those whose destination after that final division has been made can only be described in shocking and frankly horrible images. The angels will come, says Jesus, and they will separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, we're talking about hell. The image of a furnace and of fire is a common one in the Bible to describe that most terrible final destination. Weeping and gnashing of teeth are almost the stereotyped description of the action of that place. Remorse, anger, grief, suffering. I want to warn you here against a couple of ways in which I think we routinely minimise the effects of these images and just casually dismiss them, allow them to run over us without having much impact at all. One way is that we hear the image of the furnace 
and something in our brains immediately goes, well, that is just an image. It's just an image. It's just a picture. And somehow we think that that means we don't need to take it seriously. Well, I I take it this is just a picture. I don't think there is some enormous metaphysical furnace out there. But if this is the image, this is the most appropriate image that can be used by Jesus Christ, who shows himself to be a master of this sort of thing, if this is the best image he can use, what must the reality be like? We've got other defences, of course. Uh, we hear this, and it sounds, because it's, it's been such a part of our culture, this image, for so long, and it sounds to us, frankly, medieval, Uh, like something that people used to believe in, in the past, uh, but we've grown up a bit now. If uh, we think about it at all, uh, we we think perhaps of hell as it's depicted in The Simpsons, or something like that. It's a cartoonish image. I think it's uh, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters who says that the devil deliberately propagates that image of himself as this cartoonish figure with a pitchfork and red tights because... We then think, well, I can't believe in that. That's ridiculous. And somehow make the logical slide to, therefore, I can't believe in the devil at all. And I think we do the same with hell. I can't believe in the kind of cartoonish popular culture depictions of hell. Therefore, I I can't believe in it at all. We've grown up beyond believing such things. But have we? Might we not have to admit that Jesus knows better than us and that we cannot grow up beyond his knowledge and his words? As terrible as it is, we must take this image seriously. I feel... Uh, the need to to press the point a little further. And I offer no apologies for your discomfort. I assure you it's worse for me. The fiery image of hell represents simply this, the absolute opposition of God to human sin and the final result of that opposition when it meets a sinner who will not repent. There's no way to tell this story that is not terrible. We know, all of us, if we stop to think about it, that we're not perfect and that we have done things and thought things and said things of which we are or ought to be ashamed. And if we know our Bibles, we know that those actions and thoughts come out of our hearts which the scripture describes as deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We're not living as God designed human beings to live or as God requires human beings to live. 
We are, the Bible says, rebels against God's rule. In willful defiance of him, living for ourselves by our own rules. We're sinners. And God's opposition to sin is total and inflexible. And hell is what that opposition to sin looks like when it comes into contact with a sinner who will not repent. Why is Jesus telling us this? It often surprises people that Jesus is the character in the Bible who speaks the most about hell and about the wrath of God and about final judgment. Why is he telling us this? You don't want to hear about it. God knows I don't want to stand here and talk about it. Frankly, we could all leave much happier this morning if this weren't in our Bibles. So why is it here? I find it reassuring to remember that this is Jesus speaking. Throughout his life, he showed himself to be a man who was loving and caring. He's not just telling us this because he's cruel and he wants to torture us with it. I suspect that he didn't enjoy speaking about it any more than I do. He doesn't want to frighten us or depress us. He's telling us this because we need to know. He's telling us this because he cares about us. We need to take a step back at this stage. If we focus in on the few verses of this parable and just see them exclusively, the prospect of the end of the age will be terrible. Unspeakably terrible. And we will leave here feeling very, very bleak. But this parable, this image, stands in a context. The image itself is undeniably dark. But the context is wonderfully light. Listen. This is part of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel, the good news of Matthew, tells me the story of this Jesus, the Jesus who told this parable and who painted this terrifying image that has frankly ruined my Saturday afternoon. It tells me his story. The Jesus who tells this parable is the Jesus who, as the eternal Son of God, left a realm of light and glory to be born of a virgin and to walk in my world of murk and darkness and shadows. He became a human being and he suffered throughout his life. When he told this story, he was already on his way to a much deeper descent than that 
a deeper descent even than his climb down from heaven to be a man. He would go to Jerusalem where he would be handed over by one of his own disciples to the temple authorities. They, in turn, would hand him over to the Romans who at their bidding would crucify him. And as he hung dying, the eternal Son of God, become man, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why in the Gospel of Matthew is it recorded that the Son of God went to such depths? Why is he abandoned by his Heavenly Father on the cross? The answer of the New Testament is that at this point Jesus himself tastes hell. He takes on himself the total burden of our rebellion against God. And as he hangs on the cross, he endures not only the physical agony of crucifixion, but the very fire of hell, the wrath of God against human sin, that can only be described as a terrible, burning furnace. The Jesus who speaks this parable about hell knows where he is going. He knows that this is something that he will experience. I promised you a context of light. Perhaps it doesn't seem so light at the moment. Well, here the sequel. The Jesus who told this parable died, his body pierced by nail and spear and his soul scorched by hell. But three days later, he rose again. He has gone through it. He has borne it. And he is triumphant. And he promises, he promises that all who trust him and follow him will never need to fear this fire. He was scorched on their behalf and in their place. Now understand the parable of the net. The thing is, there aren't any good fish. There are no good fish. Only bad ones. All of us, without exception, stand in rebellion against God in so many ways and could only be called the wicked. All of us should be thrown away. And in fact, it is only because of Jesus that there is any division at all in this parable. Without Jesus, and without his saving death, the parable would run like this. A group of fishermen hauled their dragnet up the shore to see what they had caught after a hard night's work. Disappointingly, there were no fish that they could sell, and so they burnt the lot. 
unless Jesus steps in. That is the way the story goes. Just as there are two groups of fish in this parable, I want to try to make two points from this. They're the same point, just said in a different tone of voice. My first point is directed towards those of you who are trusting in the Lord Jesus and seeking to follow him. I don't care right now how uh, feeble and flickering your faith in him is or how much you feel that your following him has just been reduced to a stumbling in the darkness constantly and hoping that he's somewhere ahead of you. If there is any trust in him, if your hope is in him, if you want to follow him, if you have truly said, in the words of the general confession that we read earlier, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past. Then I want to say, Jesus Christ has been through hell for you. And you do not ever need to fear it. I will ask you a question. Do you not love him for what he has done? This parable is here, brothers and sisters, to tell us what we will never face and to tell us what our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, has faced for us. Is there to motivate us to love and to obedience? But there may be some people here who have never actually set out on the way of following Jesus and who have never trusted him. To you I would like to say Jesus Christ has been through hell so that you do not need to. Will you not come to him? He offers you forgiveness. He offers you change. And he offers you complete security. The final division will be a reality. But there is no need for it to be a terrible reality for you. Everything, everything that the New Testament has to say about hell, let us read it with Jesus in mind. Let us read it with the cross in mind. Remembering that he has taken it in our place. And let's live to praise God.